Father, we believe that you created the entire universe simply by speaking. And that you are all-powerful and all-knowing and amazing. Your glory is unfathomable. We believe that you have a plan and have had a plan from the very beginning, and it includes how all of this ends. And it includes Israel. So we ask that you would teach us today from your word what we can learn about these things. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn to Zechariah chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 12, chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 13, verse 1. Page 543 in the Bibles we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Zechariah verse by verse. And today we're at this section, Israel in God's plan of end times revival. Now, in the Bible, you read of miraculous saving events, like uh, in 2 Kings chapter uh, 19, when Assyria, the world empire of the day, attacks Jerusalem, and it surrounds Jerusalem, and there's absolutely no hope for them, but then somehow they end up beating them, and as we read in the scriptures, the angel of the Lord slaughters 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers, and we have victory for the Israelites. You read about those things in the Bible, and you think, wow, that was pretty cool back in those days, right? Okay, but then you read the history. June 5th, 1967, began the famous Six-Day War, where Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq all surrounded Israel. They specifically stated they were going to wipe them off the map. They had twice as many soldiers, four times as many tanks, three times as many airplanes, and somehow, some way. In six days, Israel defeats them, expands their territory by three times, and takes Jerusalem. And on the seventh day, rested. <laughs> when you read and go into detail into that, I mean, I'd encourage you to Google that. Google miracles of the six-day war. All of the little things that took place as well is just absolutely phenomenal. That God is clearly doing something Still, he hasn't stopped doing these kinds of things. Uh, our passage actually describes an end times victory where Israel is not only delivered, but saved, finally receiving Jesus as Messiah. And I believe we're close to this time. God has a plan for Israel, and it is a plan not only for survival, it's a plan for revival. So what can we learn about the end times and about revival in general from this passage? Let's see. This, by the way, if, if you remember, as we've been going through Zechariah, occasionally I'll say, and I can't wait till we get to chapter 12. We're here. All right, okay. <laughs> here we are, all right. Let's start out with verse one, okay? Uh, 
God is creator and planner. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord concerning Israel, a declaration of the Lord who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundation of the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. Now, it's interesting how it starts out with this declaration of God in, all, in his strength before he goes into these details, but it makes sense to me. It starts out with this word, a pronouncement. We saw this back in chapter 9. If you remember, chapter 9 through the end of the book is the more apocalyptic type of literature in this book. And chapter 9 starts out a massah, a pronouncement or an oracle, a burden of the Lord. Uh, And then chapter 12, so three chapters later, he he brings it out again to, to emphasize this is the word of the Lord to help us understand what the end will be like. And he says here, he speaks of God as the creator and planner. You see, God is no deist God. You know what deism is? It was the belief that there was a supreme being, he kind of created the world, wound it up like a clock, and then had nothing more to do with it. It was actually a popular religion around the time of the foundation of our country. Some of our founding fathers were deists. Not very many, but some were deists, okay? So it's that idea. But I believe that that idea has kind of crept into American Christianity because many Americans live as if they are practical deists. They say, yeah, I believe God did the miracles way back then, but can he do it today? (laughs) Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, yes, this is, this is what we see in the Scriptures. We need, though, a proper perspective on these things to experience revival. And in revivals, God always moved powerfully, and in this end times revival, he will move powerfully. But God made the heavens and the earth. He says, a declaration of the Lord who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth. This shows his incomparable power, but also that he is the master builder. So his power and his wisdom. Our enemies are like gnats facing a blast furnace, okay, when God is on our side. Or I should say, when we are on his side, okay, (laughs) So that's, that's what we're seeing here. That's why he's starting this out. And against all odds, as we'll see later on, but with God on your side, how can you lose? God is all-powerful. He is all-wise. Liberal theologians toy with things like process theology that denies the power of God. Process theology, uh, Alfred Northhead Whitehead, he said that God is evolving and he's hopefully going to get strong enough to overcome evil someday. Wow. Wow. Okay, or we have uh, open theism. God doesn't know the future. He got caught off guard by all the evil that took place in the world. Okay, those puny gods can't save them. But the God of the Bible, he can do anything. And that's what we see. So we see he made, he created the heavens and the earth, and he made humans. He formed the spirit of man within him. God made humans. This shows his power. It shows his knowledge. By the way, if you're ever, if you're interested, 
This would be a verse to show creationism rather than traducianism. And you're all wondering, what are you talking about, Larry? If you don't know, I'm not going to tell you right now. Okay. It'd take way too long. Okay, I don't have time for that right now. But if, you want, if you're interested, t- talk to me later. Okay, well, at any rate. Uh, but it does show, see, if God created the humans, that shows his power, it shows his knowledge, but it also shows his ownership. He owns us. Uh, let me read something from Stephen Rummage in his commentary. He says, have you ever bought a new shirt or a new pair of pants and found tucked into one of the pockets a slip of paper that says, inspected by number seven? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, yeah. Or eight or 10 or 12 or whatever. It's, uh, when I see one of those little inspected by seven notes, it makes me think that somewhere in the shirt factory, at the end of the whole process of making my shirt, Inspector Seven was sitting at her station when my shirt came across her table. She took my shirt, held it up, measured it, checked all the stitching, made sure all the seams were sewn right, looked to see if the pattern of the fabric was right, and if nothing was wrong with the shirt, took that little slip from a huge stack and put it in my shirt pocket, inspected by seven. Now use your imagination for just a moment. Could you picture a newly formed shirt ever saying to Inspector Seven, What right do you have to judge me? Who do you think you are? You're looking at me, you're pulling on me, and you're making sure that all these things are right with me. What gives you the right? I can imagine Inspector Seven saying, Mr. Shirt, the reason I have the right to judge you is because I am your manufacturer. I made you, and because I created you, I have the right to inspect you and decide whether or not you meet my qualifications. It's a good point. God made us. We were made for him, not the other way around. And so he owns us. So we will find our best, our rest, our purpose as we find it in him. Okay? So starts out great focus on God. And then in verses 2 through 9, we see that God will deliver and protect Israel. Let's read it. Look. I will make Jerusalem a cup that causes staggering for the peoples who surround the city. The siege against Jerusalem will also involve Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who try to lift it will injure themselves severely when all the nations of the earth gather against her. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration... I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. I will keep a watchful eye on the house of Judah, but strike all the horses of the nations with blindness. Then each of the leaders of Judah will think to himself, the residents of Jerusalem are my strength through the Lord of armies, their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile. Like a flaming torch among sheaves, they will consume all the peoples around them on the right and left while Jerusalem continues to be inhabited on its site in Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of David's house and the glory of Jerusalem's residence may not be greater than that of Judah. 
On that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that on that day, the one who is weakest among them will be like David on that day. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So here we see that God will deliver uh, and protect Israel. In the end times, revival, uh, miracles will take place. These are military miracles, but I believe that miracles in general will take place in the end times, revival. Now, are we open to that or are we deists in thought? Because as if we're getting close to this or if we're just going to experience revival ourselves, are you open to God moving mightily because he can and does do those kinds of things, okay? This phrase, on that day, it refers to end times. It's a phrase used throughout the prophetic books of the Bible. It's actually used 16 times in chapters 12 through 14. I believe it's like eight times in this chapter alone, on that day. He's focusing on this. Here is speaking meaning of the last days. The Bible predicted the end would take place in Israel. We see this here. We'll see it especially in chapter 14. But we see it in the book of Revelation. That the, Where's the, the battle, the, the last battle going to take place? Armageddon, right? Okay, It's going to take place in Israel. Now, just think about that for a minute. Because 150 years ago, it makes sense today, doesn't it? <laughs> but 150 years ago, if you were to tell people, even Christians, the world's going to end in Israel. The last battle will be in Armageddon, the valley right there in Israel. Everybody would have looked at you like you were nuts. Because most people were, were either post-millennial or amillennialists. They didn't believe any of the end time stuff was actually going to happen that way. Because they didn't think God still had a plan for Israel. Israel was kicked out of their homeland. They were just the Jewish people. Most people were anti-Semitic, et cetera, et cetera, okay? But then something happened. And this is why it's not so difficult for us to understand why the battle would happen there. Three things actually happened. First of all, the, the Muslims, the Islamic people, took over that whole area, the whole Middle East, uh, uh, in the 600s uh, A.D. And, and afterwards. But then oil was discovered. <laughs> that made a huge difference. Oil was discovered. And then we have this thing called Zionism, where the Jewish people went back to their homeland and in 1948 became a nation. You put those three together. Muslims hate the Jews. Jews go into their land. Muslims get oil, have lots of money. Everything's set up now for a battle in the Middle East right there, okay? But once again, if you were to say this 150 years ago, hardly anybody would have believed you. That, oh, no, 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 we got to take this figuratively. 
is how they would have understood it. But here we see, and I believe that's a miracle. God is setting things up. How in the world did God know <laughs> that that would be the place, the powder keg that would uh, you know, bring all the world against it? They've tried even back in 1967. Not all the world, but uh, you know, all the surrounding nations of, is- of Israel tried. And we're going to see according to the Revelation as well as according to Zechariah, well, even in our passage here, all the nations will come against Jerusalem in the, the end time. Okay, so but how did God know that? Well, because he knows everything. (laughs) Israel's enemies, this passage says, will be humiliated. We see the, the panic and the riders of the horses will become mad. The horses themselves will become blind, it says in verse four. Uh, In David Levy's commentary, he says, he's speaking of, verse 3 is primarily, God is saying that the nations that will attack Jerusalem will drink the full cup of his wrath. Every invading army will become disoriented like an intoxicated person who reels under the influence of alcohol. In their stupefied conditions, the armies will stumble, fall, and become immobilized in battle. Likewise, Jerusalem is compared to a very heavy, burdensome stone that weighs too much to heave away, and it will cut in pieces or lacerate anyone who tries. In other words, those who attack Jerusalem will rupture, injure, and lacerate themselves. In spite of this awesome, detailed warning, all nations of the earth will come against Jerusalem in the day of the Lord. See, he's referring to verse 3 where it says, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who try to lift it will injure themselves severely when all the nations of the earth gather against her. So we see that this is going to happen. Fumbling, bungling, three stooges-like actions are going to be taking place. Once again, if you go and Google miracles of the Six-Day War, you'll see that that was exactly what happened back then, too. It's pretty fascinating. But, uh, but this is what's going to happen in the end here. Now, uh, they did this. Uh, it, it's, this is what's going to happen and yet they're all going to go against Israel, but somehow God is going to rescue them. And it's got to be by the miraculous, right? Once again, do you believe in the miraculous? To believe that God can do this kind of stuff even today, perhaps even in your life? I think he can. As we seek the Lord, I believe, uh, look at Habakkuk chapter 3, Verse 2, it's just a couple books to the left. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. This is the prayer of Habakkuk. He says, Lord, I've heard the report about you. He remembers the other Old Testament passages like uh, Kings chapter 18. I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. In other words, he's seeing them in his own life as well. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. There's his prayer for revival. Do those same works again. Do it again, God. That's the prayer that he's saying here. And because God is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, and he has promised that he will do these kinds of things, and so we seek him. 
to do that. Israel's enemies, according to this passage, will be humiliated, and Israel will be made strong. You see verse 8, on that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that on that day the one who is weakest among them will be like David. David, the one who killed Goliath with a sling, right? The weakest one will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord. The, one, the angel of the Lord is the one who slaughtered the 185,000 Assyrians, okay? On that day I will set... Uh, on that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So Israel will be made strong. Once again, I believe the six-day war was a precursor to that. Because I believe in Ezekiel 37, we're seeing that prophecy being acted out as we speak. Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones, it speaks of a two-stage effect where the first stage is Israel comes back to their homeland and becomes a nation. That's the bones gathering together. But then God pours out his spirit upon them that, and they are then saved. That's the second part of Ezekiel 37. That's what we're gonna see in just a moment in verse 10, okay? But that's two stages. The first stage has already begun, and so we're seeing this acted out. And God's side always wins in the end. This brings me to my favorite verse in Zechariah. Okay, Chapter 12, verse 10. Israel will receive Jesus as Messiah. Look at it. He says, then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. And they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of David's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Nathan's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Levi's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, by itself and their women by themselves, all the remaining families, every family by itself and their women by themselves. On that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. Now, here is a picture here, and he starts at verse 10 and finishes at chapter 13, verse 1, which is why chapter 13, verse 1 belongs to chapter 12. Okay? I mean, they both speak of the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. It is a two bookends, and the, the biblical writers wrote a lot like that. They were, this is clearly a section. This is one of those illustrations that where we know that the chapter and verse positions of the Bible were not inspired, okay? We know that. They were originally written without chapter and verses. Sometimes you just scratch your head. Why did they change the chapter there, it makes no sense. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, I do have a theory, by the way, okay, um, you know, of who actually wrote these, you know, put the chapters and verse things in there. I think it was a guy riding on his horse. And every time he hit a bump, 
you know, that was, that was where he changed the chapter. Because it makes no sense here, okay? But, but at any rate, here's this section, okay? And what we see here is it says, he will, God will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the Jewish people, the, specifically the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. And then it says, they will look at me. God is speaking, right? They will look at me, God, whom they pierced. What is he talking about? The crucifixion. Obviously, the New Testament quotes this verse to refer to Jesus, okay? So here we see, they will look at me, God, whom they pierce, because Jesus is God, right? Okay, they will mourn for him. And this mourning, as it describes it in the next few verses, we see in chapter 13, verse 1, results, because it's a true repentance, it results in the forgiveness of their sins. The Jewish people are going to receive Jesus as Messiah in the end. You want to have a part in that? I do, okay? Because God says it's going to happen. So let's get involved in this, okay? He's going to bring the Jewish people to the Lord. Well, let's walk through this passage a little, little more detail. First of all, God is always the initiator of salvation. He pours out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David before they receive Jesus as Messiah. Uh, the people of Israel are stubborn people, <laughs> right? But when God pours out his spirit upon them, when God draws them, they run to him. And isn't that true? of all believers. We weren't seeking after him. If you think about it, when you got saved, you were just doing your own thing and somehow you came to your senses. That's how it happened to me. I wasn't running after God. He was running after me like the hound of heaven. And he got me. Thank you, Lord. God is always the initiator of salvation. Look at uh, Romans 3, 9 through 12, we see a, a, a point that we need to come to grips with. This is where we're all at before we become Christians. This is the, the truth of humanity because of the fall. It says in chapter 3, verse 9, What then are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. If you look at chapter 1 of Romans and chapter 2 of Romans, chapter 1, he shows how the Gentiles are guilty. Chapter 2, he shows how the Jews are guilty. And here he puts it all together. All are under sin. Every one of us have sinned. As it is written, there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. So much for the seeker services. They should be empty because there's no one who seeks God unless he seeks them first, okay? Uh, where did I go? Uh, all have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Now, that doesn't do so much for our self-esteem, does it? <laughs> okay, but that's where we're at before Jesus. But when he, because he loves even the most horrible sinners like us, he runs after us. He calls us. He draws us to himself. John 6, 44, unless the Father draws them, they cannot come to me. But when he draws, we run to him. God is always the initiator of salvation. Israel will recognize their guilt 
in rejecting Messiah. Specifically, they will look upon me whom they pierced. This phrase, they pierced, what's he referring to there? Well, other passages of the Old Testament also predicted the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This was around 500 B.C., so 500 years before Jesus. It was uh, predicted. By the way, it didn't use the word crucifixion, did it? Because crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. So God is predicting that Jesus, that the Messiah is going to be killed by piercing. Using that phrase, that's a phrase they did understand. Look at Isaiah 53, another example of this, verses 4 through 6. And by the way, that means this is a miracle that God predicted ahead of time before crucifixion was even invented that Messiah would be killed by crucifixion. It says in chapter 53, now this is written 700 years before Jesus, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he, and this is referring to Messiah, to the servant, he was pierced, because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Here we see that Messiah would be pierced even though he didn't deserve it, but he did it as in our place, as our substitute. He was punished so that we wouldn't have to be punished. Um, That's what we're seeing here. Uh, Specifically pierced, interestingly enough. Now, uh, in Psalm 22, if you go to that, Psalm 22, David originally writing about himself and his experience But clearly, even the Jewish rabbis recognized he was referring to Messiah or referring to someone future because of the the language used here. In chapter 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Those were the words of Jesus on the cross, right? So this is clearly referring to Jesus ultimately. Well, look at how it describes it in verses 14 through 18. Now notice the description of a crucifixion. This is written a 1,000 years before Christ, okay? Right around 1,000 A.D. Look at how he says. He says uh, in verse... 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. That's what happens when you're hanging on a cross. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember when Jesus said, I thirst. You put me into the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. He's killed by piercing in the hands and feet. If you imagine trying to stab someone in the hands, that doesn't kill him, does it? So it's clearly a prediction of the crucifixion a thousand years before the crucifixion, some 700 years before crucifixion's even invented. 
That's what we're seeing in our passage. It's all gonna come together for the Jewish people when they're reading their scriptures and God pours out a spirit of grace and prayer upon them, they will realize we killed our own Messiah. They will repent and receive forgiveness. The crucifixion is a real thing. By the way, this is a conundrum for the Muslims, okay? A conundrum because according to the Quran, I brought my Quran with me, According to the Quran, Jesus wasn't actually crucified. Let me read it for you. In chapter uh, Surah 4, 157, the Quran says, And because of their saying and boast, we killed Messiah Esau, that's the name for Jesus in for Muslims, Esau, son of Miriam, the messenger of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him, but it appeared so to them. The resemblance of Esau was put over another man, and they killed that man. And those who differ therein are full of doubts. They have no certain knowledge. They follow nothing but conjecture, for surely they killed him not. It says they didn't kill him. Now, the conundrum is all the historical evidence shows, even from non-Christian sources, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. But not only that, as we've seen, it was predicted hundreds of years beforehand that Messiah would be crucified. So they're in this dilemma of saying he really wasn't. I remember when we did our Muslim outreach, uh, Paul and I uh, had coffee with uh, a couple Somalis and uh, we were talking about w- with them and, and one of the things that we, we talked about this and he said, well, uh, actually, uh, Jesus wasn't um, crucified, but they made this one of the soldiers, God made one of the soldiers look like Jesus and they crucified him. And I said to him, I said, so God deceived them. And, he, and, and if you remember this, he said, yeah. I mean, that was his first like. And after he said that, he realized that's probably not the right response. <laughs> because then I asked him, I said, so God deceived people? And in fact, he deceived the entire Christian world later on because he knew God knows everything. He knew that all Christians would believe this deception. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Muhammad made a mistake. He couldn't figure out why God would allow his prophet to be killed. Well, I'm sorry. Jesus was crucified. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. So, we see here, Israel will be forgiven. On that day, chapter 13, verse 1, on that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. Israel will be forgiven to wash away sin and impurity. Let me read Stephen Rummage. He says, there it is. Zechariah 13.1 depicts the gracious result of Israel's repentance. God promises to cleanse his people from two things, sin, which refers to anything that separates us from God or anything that is not right according to God, and impurity, which is anything in our lives that is broken. He cleanses us from both. Sin is forgiven. Uh, We are all guilty. And every sin will be punished. Either 
we experience the punishment ourselves, which is hell. Or if we place our faith in Jesus, if we repent of our sins, place our faith in Jesus, outwardly expressing that faith in baptism, we're, we're recognizing that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin we were supposed to pay. So he, as our representative, so to speak, he, as the substitute, experienced the punishment for us. So notice all sins were punished, but we don't experience the punishment. That's what it means to be forgiven. Sin is forgiven, but also we're all broken and defiled, aren't we? Every one of us. And God's redemption brings restoration and deliverance to us. Uh, let, me, let me read 1 Peter 1.18. This is a marvelous verse. 1 Peter 1.18 speaks of not only does the cross provide forgiveness of sin, but it does provide this cleansing, this uh, setting free of the junk and garbage of our old life. First Peter 1.18, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. That redemption, that means the price paid to set us free from a slavery, from a bondage, here specifically of the empty way of life inherited by our fathers. The, the stuff, the sinful nature, the garbage that's passed down onto us, whatever that might manifest itself. All of us have a sinful nature that manifests in different ways. We're all in this bondage with the shackles on, and Jesus' death on the cross breaks the shackles. It sets us free. Whatever you're bound to, whatever things that are holding you back, if you trust in Christ, you can experience this deliverance from it. The addictions of the world can be broken because of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.13, uh, Galatians 1.4, all these things bring this out as well. So now I want you to imagine. Imagine a people seeking after God together delivered from the bondages of Satan, united in love for God and each other, open to miracles and ready to share with the lost the deep joy that they are feeling from knowing God. That can be us. It will be Israel. Do you want to get in on God's plan? I do. Well, then let's pray. <laughs> well, Father, we confess that we're the weak, we're the broken, we're these people that describe the, that we're the weakest among them. We're not like some of these other people who look strong. We're the weakest among them. But you say we can, you'll make us like David. And we pray that you'd strengthen us. We ask that you would come and do mighty, mighty things in our midst. Bring revival. Revive us, oh God. And we pray for Israel, that you would bring peace to Jerusalem, that you would help them, O oh Lord. We pray specifically and especially that you would bring them the Prince of Peace, Jesus 
that even now as we hear the reports, more and more Jewish people are coming to Christ. We can see that you're beginning to do this and we want to get in on that. Use us even to reach them. I pray for the team that's going to Israel that we will enjoy that time. We will truly, uh, the Bible will become, come to life for us, but I also pray that we'll make a difference while we're there. Bring them Jesus, oh Lord. Come, oh Lord. We put our trust in you and we believe you are a God of miracles. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.